Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. What up, though? Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm Jay Hall, and how are you? Today, you're just going to get me. There, there you got it. You're just going to get me. But that's okay, though, because today is our season finale episode. And as I was thinking about what today's episode would be, I thought about season finales in general. It was going to cut to it. We're coming off, as we're recording right now, the day after the TV show on HBO, Secession series finale just happened. Now, I like Secession, okay? I know this show is about the history of being Black, but Secession is about the Roy family, which allegedly, allegedly is loosely based off the Rupert Murdoch family. But for me, I like the show for a couple things. One, I like watching TV shows of white on white crime. It's just me sometimes. It's just who I am. When I see white on white crime, I'm like, bet. I don't necessarily need to see Black people on this show. I don't. They're all rich. They're all entitled. And they're all a mess. But the show really does have great writing, great character development. It gives you that emotional pull. You find yourself looking at the TV screen like, what the hell? Brian Cox, who played Logan Roy, was magnificent as an actor. The guy that played Ken was just dope in who he was. It was just a great show. But the season finale, series finale, and listen, at this point, if you're a fan, you watch the show. If you're not a fan, then I'll give you something very brief. The show, Secession, is exactly what the title is. It's about the family really going back and forth about who is going to take over the company, the Roy family, okay? Now, in the third episode of the last season, the father drops dead in the middle of him about to sell the company. And they have this idea, the brother named Ken, where they don't want the company to be sold. They actually want to run it themselves. So him, his brother Roman, who's played by Macaulay Culkin's brother, who I can't remember, but he looks just like Macaulay Culkin, only he doesn't have blonde hair. And let's just get to the point that at the end, the shareholders holders, are having a vote. Ken is extra cocky. He don't even want to give a speech or anything. He just owns some, yeah, you know, you guys know me. And if you watch the show, you know they all have this language in the way they speak. And it comes down to a vote of 6-6 and the last vote has to be given by his sister, Shiv. When it was getting there, let me tell you how I was thinking to myself because if you've been watching the show, then you know Shiv has been a mess. Shiv is somebody that has been portraying the family left and right. She sided with the person who was trying to buy out the company. She thought she was going to get a position. She found out she was not about to get a position that her father, I mean, that her husband, who she's been treating like crap throughout the entire show, that her husband was going to be set up to be the president of the company. And so when she teamed up with her brothers at the end, they really was having this very special moment family they were like kids they were playing in their mother's kitchen and having fun but then when it gets down to the vote she can't do it she walks out the room she's acting like she's having problems breathing ken comes in there 
Roman comes in there and they're like, what's going on? And then she's awesome. I changed my mind. I, I just don't think you'd be good at it. And then they all have this collapse and it's right in front of the screen. And you're sitting there. If you've been a fan of the show, you're like, yo, what in the entire F is going on? And they just collapse. And she doesn't vote. She goes in there, she votes no. The company gets bought. And the guy, Ken, if you've been on Twitter, it's this infamous picture of him sitting at the park, just staring off into the wilderness like his soul is gone. And I guess I saw something online that stated that originally they were going to write it where he was going to jump off into the river, but his bodyguard was going to stop him as the credits was going to roll. But it just ended with him just ended with a lot. But I'm talking about Ken right now, the guy that you thought who was the closest out of all of them that probably could have ran the company. And keep in mind, they all were a mess. Okay, but for me, the way I look at it, I just felt like Ken was going to end up taking over the company. And I thought his father from beyond the grave was going to F him with some sort of raw deal. He was going to be in prison or not knowing what he was going to do or something like that. But no, Shiv just couldn't do it because there wasn't something in it for her. You know, somebody said well, she was just putting her brother in his place and holding him accountable. And I told a friend, no, no, because there's an old episode where her father said, you even married a man who's beneath you. Your problem is you don't want to compete. And that's how I looked at it. She's too scared to compete. But she's also, to add to that, is that she's also somebody that doesn't want somebody else she knows taking that position that she knows she's too scared to have. Now, why does this make sense? I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. It ended, and it brought me to another series finale that ended, my favorite show. That's up there with my all-time favorite show of all time. My all-time favorite show of all time is The Wire. You want to know what number two my all-time favorite show is? It's Snowfall. Snowfall ended also, too. And with Snowfall, the show is about Franklin Saint. You know, you've seen the guy, I think it's Demaris Idris. Is how you pronounce his name? I can be wrong. So wrong. But forgive me. But Franklin Saint. Okay, the last season, every episode felt like a cliffhanger. Okay, and at this point, I'm not spoiling anything for you because you'd either been watching the show, you've seen it, or you didn't see it. Tough to tag to you, but Franklin saying everyone kept thinking or speculating that he was going to die. Now, out of the group people in the show, somebody heavy did die, and that was good old Unk. Yeah, shout out to Amir Joseph, he actually is a Howard alumni. He played the hell out of that role of Unk. I mean, man, it hit my soul. There were so many deep things on that show that if you go back and you watch it, and it was John Singleton's last gift to us. Just a beautiful show. But it ended also not with Franklin St. Dying. It ended with Franklin just being zoned out, an alcoholic, homeless, rough, bearded out, everything. If you watch the show, Franklin didn't even touch alcohol. He didn't do anything. And he's so gone. He's a walking dead. And it gave me chills. Because death, I think sometimes we look at it as, oh, it's a tragedy and everything is sad and this and this. And it is. For us, for us, it is. But there's something that for me that's always been a little bit scarier of seeing a walking dead. And it's probably because I grew up in a crack era and going to school every day to elementary school and seeing crackheads walking around looking like zombies and looking lifeless, that's something I just didn't want. And when I saw that season finale, that series finale, it really did something to my soul. I mean, it, it, it I, I was going to do an IG live recap about it, but I just 
wasn't emotionally available for it. I just, I just couldn't do it. It's very hard to close. There are shows that didn't do right. People are still pissed off about The Sopranos. Remember the whole everything went black? I rewatched The Sopranos a few years ago and it still resonates, still hurts. Yeah, because it just didn't make sense. And now that Tony Soprano is actually dead in real life, you are extra angry. Because what did that mean? <laughs> Remember people were calling their cable, thinking that their cable cut off? But the Sopranos didn't do it right. Insecure did a really good job. And what I've been noticing about season finales, and I saw this in the interview with Issa Rae when she was talking about, or she did a recap of the season finale, Insecure. And that what they wanted to do was not end things with everybody. They wanted to show that their lives were going on, that their characters were going to live on. It was very important to show that these people are going to continue to live, which is something a little bit different for me because growing up, season finales, even series finales, there was always an end, just an end game. Everybody's dead or everyone goes off into the sunset. But I've been noticing in the shows that I've been watching, there's been this thing about seeing the characters just move on. And just knowing that their lives are going to go on, they're just not no longer going to have a camera in front of them. Which brings me to the Dear Mama documentary. Excellent documentary. I was a little bit reluctant to watch it because how many documentaries, especially if you're of a certain age, how many documentaries about Tupac can you really watch? I mean, some of us who was around, who was outside, we was teenagers, we was in middle school, and we remember Pac and Biggie and all in there. You remember the all those underground, unofficial, official documentaries about Pac, all those interviews, it was only one documentary that I really think that was credible, and that was the one that was called Tupac Resurrection. That's the one that his family company was behind, Amaru Entertainment. But besides that, I wasn't had no interest in watching Dear Mama, just none, until two things. Number one, I saw that the director of the documentary was going to be Alan Hughes, who is part of the Hughes brothers, who did Men Society, and who also did the first three videos of Tupac, meaning Dear Mama, Trapped, and Homie's Call. So that was the one thing that caught my interest. The second thing that caught my interest was seeing Alan Hughes on The Breakfast Club, and he was talking about the reason why he took the job, and he was talking about the reason why he did it, and people were thinking that he was going to sabotage it, because if you don't know, Alan Hughes had a fallout with Tupac because Pac was supposed to be in men's society. Pac was upset about the role that he had and what his character was about. There became some misunderstandings. And then it was a huge fight where really Tupac and his mans jumped and beat the crap out of Alan Hughes. And then he went later on and bragged about it on national TV. Alan Hughes himself actually fought a lawsuit and they never talked after that. So for him, doing this and going back on it was something of a healing process for him. And I said, okay, you know, I'll check it out. You know, I'll I check it out immediately. I'm, it's five episodes and you get into it and they're talking about, it's not just Pop, it's the origin also of his mother, Fini Shakur, who I met years ago. I used to work at a space, a place called Media Play, which was pretty much to describe to you who don't know, it was like a Best Buy, but on top of it was a bookstore. Tupac's book, The Rose That Grew From Concrete, came out. He was already passed. He had already left us. But Afini Shakur was there signing autographs. And I used to work at the store and she signed my book for me. I still have it. And to see her story 
and who she was. Because growing up, you always knew that Tupac's mom was a Black Panther. But I don't know if, speaking for myself and the people I was around, I don't know if we knew how deep in the Black Panther she was. She was. She had a high-ranking position, and she was part of the Panther 21, who were accused that they were going to bomb police stations in New York. She defended herself in court. There were all these connections. And the way the documentary did, it kept going back to her past and Tupac's past and why he was raised the way he was and being raised by Panthers. And he had so many people pulling him in all these directions. And yet he's young. Tupac's career was only from age 20 to age 25. And to quote Snoop Dogg, Snoop Dogg said, the relationship with that nigga was complicated, unquote. But he also felt that Tupac was looking for understanding. There's a lot of things you can say about Pac. And this episode right here is not necessarily going to be about Dear Mama. I actually did a recap on Dear Mama. And you can check that out on my social media at Jayhawk Society on IG and on YouTube. And so I went into details about that if you're interested. But the reason why I'm pulling a small part about that in here, because as I'm watching everybody who's speaking about Pac, his friends, some of them he fell out with. Like, he fell out with Dr. Dre. Like I said, he fell out with Alan Hughes. Then there are people who he didn't fall out with, like the Mike Tysons of the world. These people have lived and grown enough to see another chapter in their life. I mean, for those of us that remember the Mike Tyson that we all know, when we were coming up, there's nothing in that resume of the past that show you you are seeing the Mike Tyson now who has a podcast, who smiles and laughs. No. And mind you, even this Tyson that we're seeing now, we've only been seeing this Tyson for about maybe roughly seven, eight years. I'm talking about all the way to like the 2000s. Tyson was, you know, it's Tyson, biting ears, biting people and all this other stuff. And when you see him on that couch and he's talking, he's older, he's in his 50s. He has an understanding now. He has a growth that's there now. And regardless of what your feelings might be about Mike Tyson himself, Tyson is a very candid and transparent individual who will tell you, quote unquote, from his own words, I wasn't ish. I wasn't that. I deserve my punishment. He's always maintained his innocence of going to jail for those three years for being accused of rape. But he was be honest about saying that he deserved to go to jail. Again, that's a conversation for another day. But as I'm looking at other people that are on the Dear Mama, I'm looking at the growth. The growth of all these individuals that were around and admitting that they were all very young and they were witnessing Tupac, who was so more, so much further down the road of them being advanced. And the Phoenix Shakur, Tupac's mom, she said, quote, often the artist is miles ahead of the, of the, of the audience. Now, there is one part that I love, and that was in episode three. And at the end of episode three, Tupac is found guilty in the same courthouse that years ago his mother was found innocent in. He's found guilty. If you remember, he was accused of sodomy, rape, and he was disappointed that people believed that he can actually do that. And he had also got shot in the studio. So he's in a wheelchair. He's down. He gets found guilty. He tells his friends to drive him out to the woods. He's going to smoke a lot of weed and leave him with a rifle. His auntie, Glow, beautiful spirit, 
everybody deserves an auntie like glow and she's telling the story that she was crying and she was crying and and Pac's mom got on her knees and said you put one foot in front of the other and she says these inspirational words that's what she said the within our weakness we can find strength unquote and then she tells him just right and the way they go into the editing of so many tears but they play a whole different beat and so many tears is my favorite Tupac song off my favorite Tupac album, Me Against the World. And that's an album that Tupac himself even said that I will always be his favorite album. And he's saying all these things. If you ever get a chance, go back and listen to So Many Tears. Go back. And what just made this documentary so special is that every time they played when Tupac was rapping, they turned the beat down so you can hear exactly what he had to say. And man, it was so touching. And the next scene after that, they show him in jail. We all know what happens to Tupac later on. I still recommend that you go watch the doc. It's still tragic. I didn't know retelling the story of him getting murdered in Vegas was still going to hit me the way it was going to hit me all these years later, but it did. I watched all of those things, and it leads me to thinking about past episodes that we've done here at The History of Being Black. And one episode in particular that stood out is the interview that we had with Avril Cabral, who's the author of Allies and Advocates, and say more about that. Now, she's an inclusion strategist. Now, you go back, you listen to the episode. The first thing I say off top is that Amber and I went to high school together. I've known Amber since I was 17 years old. Amber is also the individual that record introduced me to Ken Johnson, who's a producer for this show. And that's how I became the host of The History of Being Black. She know everything I've been doing in this game when it comes to media and writing. She hollered at me about an opportunity. I got a chance to have a conversation with Ken. Me and Ken had a lot of people that we mutually understood and we know. And he explained to me what the history of being Black was about, and I was all for it. But when I'm having this conversation in Abra's episode, and we're talking about her journey, we can't help but to have our back and forth because we've been knowing each other for just so long. I mean, you ever had somebody in your life that at this point in your life, they've been in your life longer than they were out? It's a thing, right? It's such a different type of relationship because this is a person that has seen everything or at least being in contact even at times where y'all wasn't consistently talking to each other you still knew of each other and it's been a journey and man when i think about who i was when i first met amber i was trash i mean i was a good guy in the sense of trying to do good things but man i was trash I was just a trash individual. I don't think that I was Freddy Krueger or anything like that, but my mindset was so off-centered in comparison. I don't know about you, but where I am right now is almost similar to what I just said about Tyson. There's almost nothing in my past that says I was going to be where I am right now. Almost. Unless you were a good friend and you were paying attention. Like, for example, I was always into hip-hop. I was always into the culture. Talk about this before. One of the best things that ever happened to me was being in a grocery store. I'm looking at a magazine. I see Scarface chilling on top of a Ferrari. I'm thinking that the magazine is a car magazine. So I buy the magazine because I don't have an interest in the Ferrari. I have an interest in Scarface, and I'm thinking he's about to talk about some things. But come to find out, this magazine was called The Source. As I'm looking in it, the entire magazine is about hip-hop hip-hop quotables. And I'll never forget the hip-hop quotable that was in there was Keith Murray, the most beautiful thing in the world. And they got articles where they're talking to rappers. And this ain't Word Up magazine. This ain't my big sisters and my big cousins and all of them 
with the big posters. No, this is stories and conversations and ratings on albums. It blew my mind that somebody was actually documenting our culture. We weren't even using the word culture back then. Shout out to the producer Ghost who listened to this right now because he know I'm not lying. We wasn't saying the word culture. It was, I think at best we were saying hip hop community, probably, but we wasn't saying that. But I was so mind blown by seeing that it changed my life. And so anything that was about hip hop, I was about. If a teacher was going to allow me to do a project, I was going to do a project about hip hop and rap music. Is it good for us? And so on and so on. When I transferred to my third school, which is where I met Amber, because listen, I went to three high schools because I wanted to challenge my mother's love. I was involved in the TV production program and I used to be a part of every Friday, we would do these things called video announcements. So people in the high school kind of knew me for being the guy to introduce new videos and all that stuff and get a chance to write in the college newspaper. The first article I ever wrote when I first went to Wayne State before I went to Howard was an article on Jay-Z's Dynasty album. I mean, I've been about this for a very long time. Right. It's also how I got into radio and everything like that. So if you're someone like Amber, you know that part because you were able to see the real me. But man, I had a whole other bag about me that I totally understand that you ain't see it. And if you did not have the patience of it, I get it because only people who really mess with you was able to see that part of me. And you know what I mean when I say that those people that really can see you, they can see past the static and all of that and they can see you. Right. And I have to tell you, someone like Amber, she was always just advanced. Just you have these minds that exist even when you're young. And they're just talking so far ahead. And you just, all you can do is sit there and listen. So where she is and doing what she does, she may not see it. But as a friend, some of us who had the privilege of witnessing that, it seems about right to us. It seems about right. And the fact that when it comes full circle to have that moment, to have the opportunity to interview her. I'm like, man, this is dope, right? And I got to tell you, it brings it to other episodes that you should go check out. Recently, we interviewed DJ Cosmic Kev, had a dope conversation with the legendary Cosmic Kev. I've been hearing about this brother now for about a decade, and he's been around longer than that, holding it down for Philly. He goes into his whole journey and everything, how he got into it and how he got into the business and who he is as a DJ and mixtapes and turntable. And you should check that episode out too. And man, that was an experience. But who he was from point A to who he is now has been tremendous growth. Another conversation that was extremely dope was having it with author Darby Baham. We went to Howard together. She has four books out and the fifth one on the way. Just dope to be able to see her on the yard and now doing her thing right now. And she's known me. So that was in a full scale moment. One of the other most beautiful full scale moments was the opportunity to interview or have a conversation, because I hate the word interview, with the dope queen, Olivia Fox. Olivia Fox is a radio legend, period. I don't care how you spin it, legend, all right? Her and her former partner, Russ Parr, they used to come on Really late at night in the beginning, back home in Detroit, when I used to listen to them like midnight on a Saturday, and they just sound like they were wrecking the studio. I it, it made me feel like I wanted to be where they were. 
a few years later, I ended up moving to DC at the same time. They were actually becoming a morning show. And it's crazy how I enter the radio thing. I enter as an intern and she splits from that partnership and she has a whole journey. And so to have that conversation with her and have her be so nice and so humble and so, and so dope. And then I got a chance to meet her at the Library of Congress when her and the other Black Women Legend Radio vets were being inducted. And Ken Johnson introduced me to her and she hugged me and she gave me a very warm greeting. And she said, man, that conversation just, it just flowed. And she said, she dug it. You have to understand for someone like me who used to listen to her and know who she is, man. I mean, I'm not necessarily an attaboy guy who really needs all of that. But whew, I called my moms. Say, hey, yo, mom, Olivia Fox said I did a good job. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it was a big deal to me. It was a big deal. Very small, but a big deal for me. Listen. All of those individuals and even more, when you go back and you listen to these people and you hear the conversations of how they start from the beginning to the end, we are the history of being Black. And they talk about themselves and they talk about their idea and what got them to their bag or what they're doing right now. And when you hear about some of them had to come up with these ideas from tragedy or they came up with these ideas because of frustration, they couldn't find what they were looking for. So they started it themselves. Or when they have these conversations about the obstacles that they have to face, why you need to pay attention to them, who they are. These are people who genuinely just want to make a mark in, they world, in the world. When you think about that journey, when I think about that journey, it's why we do it. It's essentially who we are, why we're trying to document it. Because I'm all about growth. In my past few years, I've been all about growth. If you've been rocking with me on this podcast, you know, I've been talking about growth, who I was, who I am and who I'm trying to be. Trying to live and be the man that I'm trying to be and not trying to perform into some idea of what a man is. But you want to know what stunts are growth? When I think about a stunt growth. During this period in the last few months. The great Jim Brown, former NFL running back and actor, passed away. Now, instantly, I Put a T-R-O-Y when they reminisce over you. Rest in peace, Jim Brown. But then I totally forgot something. I forgot about Jim Brown's past when it comes to women, the allegations of abuse. These are all things that can be wiki. And he got decades up there. And I listened to Bomani Jones' podcast, and he talked about some things. And he he broke down this whole thing about how Jim Brown was representing, I'm paraphrasing, you know, manhood and being a football player and even his characters that he portrayed on screen. And even when you see him talk, he was representing the idea of manhood. But he said the sad part about the Jim Brown thing is that there's nowhere you can find that's written with Jim Brown, although he proclaimed his innocence, but he doesn't take accountability. There's no part but there's accountability that he takes. And man, that's set with me. That's set with me. Because you can be innocent once. You probably can be innocent twice. But once we start getting them three, four, five times, bro, there ain't no part in there that you can be accountable for. 
See, things like that stun our growth. I'll tell you something else that stunts our growth. Within this same time period, right before Jim Brown passed, it's a huge controversial conversation with Ebony K. Williams talking to Dr. Von Zant when she was asked, would you date a bus driver? And Ebony K. Williams, who was dope, she's a writer. She's been on some reality shows. I've been paying attention to her for the last five or six years. Dope individual for what I see. But her response was, when asked, would you date a bus driver? Her response was, if he owns a bus. Boy, did that cause something. <laughs> that caused something. And I actually had the privilege of being a guest on someone who was a guest on this show before, Rika who has a show called Single You Podcast, and we went into more details about that, the K. Williams response. So you get a chance, check out Single You Podcast, and you'll see a more detailed response about that. But that conversation that was going on about that, people feeling how they want to feel about that, Ebony K. Williams being defensive, feeling how she feel about that, and then people who wanted to counter that argument, then there was a whole rebuttal that she put out where she doubled down, with triple down on how she felt, you know? She made all these comparisons. Then there was the time when she went on the Breakfast Club even immediately after that and got into a 25, 30-minute shouting match with DJ Envy. It was a lot. Then I'm seeing all these threads that I don't even realize I'm attached to of everyone having all these conversations. And after that, Gabrielle Union is in the interview. And she's talking about one thing, but on the way of her talking about one thing, she talks about how her and Dwayne Wade split the bills 50-50. And that caused a big thing. Then you have people saying, well, you know, he's the man of the house and it's emasculating and he should be paying more because he's an NBA, former NBA player and he makes more money and this and this and this and this. Then you have people who's like, oh, she's trying to have it both ways because she talked about the anxiety because she has to take care of other households and Dwayne has to take care of other households. So she feels like she always has to work. She has trauma experiences when it comes to money. Like, I don't know, a lot of us black folk. And then that became a huge conversation. Things like that for me don't give us growth. You know that Spider-Man meme where they're all just pointing at each other? Like, that's what that is to me. It's We're missing the larger issue. Especially when I think about all of these random ass Man of Spear podcasts about relationships. You see, one of the reasons why I was so intrigued about being a host of The History of Being Black is because I am so tired of seeing these random ass podcasts that are always about relationships. And they're always about these men having these yelling matches, these clips that go viral of showing just somebody just badgering a woman because of her choices and what she wants. Now, keep in mind, when you go back to Ebony K. Williams, her saying the bus driver got to own the bus and Dr. Von Zott stating to her, that's a problem. My attitude was just say you want a rich man. I don't personally care because I'm at the point in my life where, listen, if you tell me you want to marry an elephant, my only response is going to be, I think that's against the law, but have at it. Have at it. If you want to marry Dumbo's mom, feel free, yo. Go ahead. Enjoy. It's going to be rough, literally, but you have at it. Because, yo, why can't we let people live? This, these shouting matches that I see on these podcasts where they get a woman of a certain age or who has a certain idea where she, you know, 
get the stereotype of a woman who sit there on a the microphone and talk about how she doesn't want to work and her man pay for everything or a woman who's like an alleged side chick and she's on some, you know, he does this and he spend money on this while he go back to his woman. He loves me more than he loves her. And you get these men on here venting and all these men, you know, I even saw one, you know, they don't even be, they, they, they're not even that inventive in the name of their podcast. They'll be like, yo, the man podcast, you know what I'm saying? Or the screaming podcast. And all we're doing is just yelling at each other and there's no, there's nothing moving forward. And I've said this before on episodes, you know, on this show, I don't never see this same energy going into the institution and the systematic things that put us in these positions to begin with. I never see that. I If they're out there, shout out to them. If you could recommend them to me, please do. But I don't never see them, right? All I'm seeing is a bunch of Spider-Mans pointing at each other. That's all I'm saying. These things right here, they stunt our growth. Who cares if Gabriel Union and Dwayne Wade are paying 50-50? Who cares? Like, I mean, should you pay 50-50 when you're in a household, man? The thing that's so, for me, that's so unfair, and this is where I speak from a personal experience as a guy, so I can, so you can kind of get where I'm going with this, is that the idea that a man has to always be on when you're talking about in society, that a man has to always be on, that a woman can decide if she wants to be domestic or if she wants to work and no one bats an eye, but the guy is supposed to always be a provider. See, the reason I have an issue with that and what this makes sense for the entire episode that we're in right now is all of these things stunt you and they put you in a box. And when you're in these boxes, you're not allowed to grow. When you're not hearing each other and you have this fixed idea of how you think things are supposed to be, you're not allowing yourself to grow. But all you want to do is yell across the room. I'm currently reading the book, Huey Newton's book, Revolutionary Suicide. And in that book, I'm at the part where he's talking about when he's in college and he joined a black organization and the guy he's realizing is pretty much a sham. The guy who's ahead of the black organization would talk, according to Huey, about black progress and black rights and black power. But then when they would go to an actual committee where the mayor is right there or congressman is right there, he pretty much would go into a whole bag about blaming the black community for their own situations, about saying things like, yo, we shouldn't want to be on welfare. We shouldn't desire to be unemployed. We should be taking care of our kids. All those things that are pandering to whiteness. And that's what Huey Newt was pointing out, that there are a lot of black voices that only want to be around. They only want to be black when they're around black people. But when you put them in a bigger audience, then they, 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 they're shelling themselves. They, they go back and they attack us. Now think about that for a second. Black voices not wanting to speak about blackness and black rights in front of white people. I think about that and I say to myself, that is very similar to where we at right now. It's so easy to be confrontational to each other or to have this idea of where you think somebody should be based upon something that you was told. If you were told that 
a man is supposed to operate like this and a woman is supposed to operate like this and you're so committed to that, you're not allowing yourself any type of possibility for any kind of difference or any or to learn anything new because you're fixed on the idea that this is how it's supposed to be. If you're fixed on this idea that the man is supposed to do this, then you won't understand the science or the magic or the possibility of what 50-50 can bring. And keep in mind, Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade are both filthy rich. So I don't even know what that 50-50 looks like. I just know they got more money than me. But I find it interesting when we're having these conversations and the shift that happens. Once upon a time, Black people, especially living in America, we were having a lot of conversations and we were fighting for equality, 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 equality. And there are those who make the argument that we didn't focus enough on equity. I even hear a lot of women voices right now that would speak about equity because they're saying equity is also important. And it is. I had a good friend, my baby brother, he talks about that. He said he's not interested in having a conversation about equality. He's more about having conversations about equity. And I say to him and to anybody, I think that's dope. And I also think that's flawed. Just because we've been having a conversation about one thing and we didn't pay that attention to the other thing, it doesn't mean that we should just automatically put all our attention over here and then drop over here. It's like saying, I was only focused on the left side of my tire. And then when I get out of my car, I find out that the left side of my tire is okay and it'll make it. So I'm not going to pay attention to the noise that it's making over there because my right side of my tire and the passenger side is making a whole lot more noise where I haven't been paying attention to it. No, you should actually now start paying attention to all your tires. That's what you should probably do. That's probably what's best. So we shouldn't turn our heads away from equality. We should lean more into equity because we haven't been having that conversation and at the same time keep fighting for equality, some form of it. We shouldn't just drop it. Now, why is that important? I'll tell you why. The thing that all of this stuff have in common when I tell you about the season finales of Secession, Snowfalls, is that all of their life was going on. When Issa Rae said that these characters, their lives are going to go on, it's left up for you and your imagination to wonder what is going to happen to them. And in time, maybe there would be a revamp show. I don't know. But whatever your imagination takes, you're supposed to know that life goes on. About two months ago, I was on a train, me and my homegirl, and we was having a conversation. I'm talking to her, and I'm noticing that she look over my shoulder. She's looking a little disturbed. I turn around. I see a police officer, and he's talking to a kid that looks homeless. He has a hoodie wrapped up really, really tight, and he's holding onto a bag. And the officer says to him, are you okay? And then the guy is like, he, he flinches at him and he says, F out of my face. And he starts mumbling, he walks around. And there's something about his movements that feel very familiar to me. And I'm looking at him, I'm looking at him. I'm like, man, I go back. Because he's walking and he's pacing back on, you know, underground in the metro. We all wait on the train, he's pacing back and forth. And I go and I get a look and I come back to my good friend. And I say, yo, I know him. That's one of my little homies. And not just a little homie that I used to work with, because I told a lot of you that I used to be a counselor, a youth counselor for 10 years. I worked in multiple group homes and schools. This is what I did for a living for 10 years of my life. This was actually one of my kids that I actually had a relationship with outside of the job. This was my guy. 
I actually just saw him like four years ago when I brought my niece out to DC at that same train station. He was going or coming from a little baby show. And he was dressed to he was dressed up, looking nice. He said hi to my niece. He was like, What up, big homie? We haven't been talking as often, but he always hit me up. He, he always got like a new Instagram or a new number and he texts me. And I realized I haven't seen him in four years. And I think the last time we talked was maybe about a year and some change. You know, the pandemic just really just, right? But at this moment, I can't remember his name. I had a complete brain freeze. We get on the train. I'm trying to find ways to remember his name. I can't remember. I had a brain freeze. I'm looking at my homegirl and she's looking a little concerned because now he's on the train. He's pacing back and forth, doing the things that you see people who have some sort of mental something going on with them on the train do. And he kind of glances at me a little bit as if I'm familiar. And then finally he gets off the train. But when he gets off the train, I, as I'm going through my phone, I start looking at my old, because I couldn't even remember the old job that I worked at. So I start going through my phone. I had to look up my old job. And I looked up an old coworker. And then because of my phone, I have how I know you connected to you. So if your name is Terry, and if we met at, I don't know, if we met in Atlanta, I got Terry at Atlanta in there. So I was finally able to look up his name. I told my homegirl, because her stop was two stops afterwards. I said, yeah, I'm going to go back for him. I get off the train. I go back. To make a long story short, this is about three hours. I go to the same train station he got off on. And I go back to the main train station in Chinatown in D.C. I even go to two offices and I tell them the whole story that I just told you. Now I'm giving them a description. And the last time I talked to him and his grandma house, and I'm pretty sure is in Northeast D.C. and all these things. And they write it down. They, I guess they make calls, but there's nothing I can do after that. And to be honest with you, when I got home, I felt so bad. I said to myself, I don't even know what I would have did about a song. I have no idea. I, have, I don't know what I would have did. I, I don't know the step at all. Deep in my heart, I think it was about wanting him to see me and me wanting to see him and say, I know who you are. But I didn't want to say little homie or anything else because, number one, I was thinking about my homegirl who was with me, and I, I'm, I'm concerned because she's looking concerned. So I didn't want to say something that can be triggering. I didn't want to say nothing to him but his name. Oh, I felt so bad. I felt terrible. I really did. And then I had a conversation with my home, with one of my good friends from back home. Her name is Kay. And she was telling me she works in a church. And I mean, not works in church, but she does work in a church. And she was telling me inside that church, there are people in there who used to be drug users, drug abusers. And when they were younger and now they're married with kids or they're working a job and it's this. And she was like, how old is this young man now? And I said, well, by my math, he, he should be about 25, 26. She said, well, there's still time for him. There's still time for him. And that gave me a little bit of comfort, maybe a tad bit. And sometimes I still feel a certain type of way, but here's the thing. When I think about the Tupac documentary or any other documentary about Tupac or whenever I hear Tupac songs or whenever I see an old interview of Tupac, I have a lot of 
feelings that come up to the surface, but the one consistent feeling I get is, damn, he didn't get time to figure it out. He didn't get time to get that understanding that Snoop Dogg talks about. He didn't get time. Can you imagine a 50-year-old Tupac? I mean, when you go back, you you watch him, you're listening to a 22, 23-year-old. He died at the age of 25. When you see how articulate he was and what he had to say, I mean, Tupac was probably the first, maybe second, if you really want to be technical, rapper to not do the whole know what I'm saying after every sentence. He was, he was, I would say maybe Chuck D was probably from Public Enemy. Chuck D was probably the first. But Tupac was the first person that you can actually see articulate and see all these things to say. And when you hear him at the age 23 and 24, can you imagine just a 30-year-old Tupac? Just 30? How much wisdom he would have had if he just would have figured it out? You see, the luxury of time, the tragedy of time is that you can't get it back. But we don't often talk about the luxury of time is that it offers you growth. It offers you a chance for understanding. It offers you a time to keep going on with your life and be open to the possibilities of something new. And if we can figure out something new, then maybe, just maybe, we can do a little bit more with our lives than the ancestors before us. And so when I see these conversations of back and forth in a relationship and you should do this and the man should do this and all of that, for me personally, I'm looking at all of that like, yo, these are reduced ideologies that keep us fixed on something so that we can't grow. And the fact that we can't just simply ask where these things come from, because we all tend to have an understanding and an agreement when it comes to systemic racism. And we understand that those that were in power created laws and institutions that kept us down as black people. We understand that, but when you want to bring it up to all these other things that we feel we get a benefit for, then there's a, like a pause. Then there's like a, a hesitation. There's an argument. You're getting so angry at a Gabriel Union and a Dway Wade because it's 50 50. You're getting so pissed off. You know, you were so fixed on it. And when I go back and I think about how the ending of secession ended, with Ken just looking out into the waters because he was so fixed on the idea that there was nothing else he can do. His life was gone. He was obsessed with this one thing that he didn't leave room for anything else. No matter how many signs might have pointed that he should go another direction. Hell, his father's last words to all of his children was, quote, you are not serious people. Take the deal, unquote. And the last words of his brother said, quote, we are bullshit. That's what we are. Same thing with Franklin Saint. So many people kept telling Franklin, let it go. Franklin could not let it go. Now, granted, if you've been paying attention to Snowfall, someone steals $72 million from you is a lot. It's not something you can just, you know, whatever. But shout out to my baby bro, Mark, who likes to point out he got robbed, but he wasn't broke. You just wasn't going to achieve the things that you see, but he had made enough money where technically he could live legit. And that was supposed to be the goal. Especially from that era where selling drugs was not the glamorous thing. It was something you did because you were in poverty. 
So once you're out of poverty, that's supposed to be the goal, but Franklin couldn't see it. He was fixed. Everybody is not going to be able to see your growth because they're only going to be fixed on one version of you. And this is something that I had to come to conclusion with myself when there are certain people who still would see me from J. Hall of 2008 or J. Hall from 1993 or J. Hall from 2009. They kept only seeing me for one thing. And shout out to Charlemagne the God because he recently said in an interview not too long ago that, yo, hip hop is beautiful and he loves it. But a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, it doesn't matter outside of hip hop. And he's right. And I take it a step further. You all are going back and forth sometimes about saying this and saying that, but you're not trying to, or you're missing the fact that this stuff really don't matter in the long run of the game. Somebody get laid off, somebody gets sick, none of that stuff matters. But if you take, if you can't take accountability, you won't grow. Unfortunately for Jay Brown, who lived a very long life physically, but he didn't grow because he simply could not take accountability respectfully to quote Bonani Jones, Bonani Jones, he couldn't take accountability for his actions on any form. And I'm only criticizing a part of that because for me, I don't look at everybody that's a celebrity or with a microphone or a loud voice as a role model. I don't. I'll be the first to argue with you that celebrity doesn't mean role model. But to me, when you say you're going to be a role model, that's when I hold you accountable. And because Jim Brown was somebody who has been on the forefront of a lot of things when it comes to blackness. I mean, this is a man that during the L.A. riots got the gangs together in L.A. at his house and told them what they wasn't going to do and settled a lot of beef. He was part of the peace treaty, the Bloods and Crips and other gangs that were actually beefing with each other. This is Jim Brown. The brother does have history. So if you're going to put yourself out there and be that person, for me, that's when a critique comes. And there's also an opportunity. There was also an opportunity to be accountable that someone else could learn from. Now, I don't know if he did that privately, allegedly, with some of his friends, close family members. But I'm only talking about publicly, but not just about Jim Brown. I got family members myself who died to their grave, always blaming everybody else. Always feeling like it was someone else's fault. They never, by one chance or stretch of imagination, could think that they were accountable for anything. Tupac, in his story, in his defense of being accused for rape, was in a whole other room. And the other two men raped the woman. He couldn't understand why everybody was upset with him. And then he said he got it. He should have protected her. He should have made sure she left safely. It cost him his life for nine months, locked up while his best work, his best album is out. Tupac is in none of those videos from Me Against the World. He's not in So Many Tears. He's not in Dear Mama. He's not in any of those videos. He's not in Temptations. You go back, you look at all the songs from that video. Tupac is not in there. And it's not because he's dead. It's because during that period, he was in jail for nine months. He couldn't even celebrate his greatest work. Because he failed. He failed in that time, at that young age, he failed to see something differently for what he was fixed on. Because allegedly, when the woman came at him and she was yelling at him about what just happened to her, he said to his man, quote, get this be up out of here. Because he had been told, just like a lot of us men have been told, 
that if a woman is going to allow herself to have sex with you on the first night or do whatever, then she loses her value. She is a hoe. She is a bitch. And a lot of us still practice that. That's what we're told. When, when you really think about it, nobody should be devalued after a sexual experience. You shouldn't. But if you're going to be fixed on that idea and you have the privilege back in you as a man to be fixed on that idea, your cost may not be as extreme as Tupac where you're going to do nine months in jail, but there is going to be a consequence to that. You'll either see in that moment or you'll see it a lot later. But us as a collective, we all need to have that type of understanding and provide that room and that grace for that. Each episode of the history of being black, when these people are telling their story and they're talking about their journey, somebody saw that in them, gave them that opportunity or pointed them in the right direction so that that spark in them can grow. They provided them that room and an opportunity to grow so they can embark on their journey. That's a beautiful thing, right? I mean, if you think about it, being able to go on your journey, an opportunity, when you're just simply curious about something and you take it from there to a business standpoint, where you got a nonprofit organization like my good friend, Charlotte Anderson, who has Starting With Today, to actually be there to see the nonprofit Starting With Today and see where it is now versus how she started. And she was a guest on the show also too. It's a beautiful thing. Or Tiffany Ford, who has four schools, calls herself the business guru in Philly, doing her thing. There was a journey there. I'm pretty sure who she was when she first started on that journey. I'm pretty sure there's been a lot of growth and development versus where she started versus where she is right now. You see, that is what the history of being Black is about. That's what I love being here. That's what the history of Blackness should be about. Blackness has so many things in it. The one thing Blackness consistently should have in there is growth. You watch the Roots movie, you watch Roots movie, whether you're watching the new one that came out some years ago or the old one, but it is a journey. It's a story about a journey from Kuta Kinte that landed after he was taken from the homeland of Africa and he put his feet on American soil to the family afterwards. It's about the journey. Black people have always been about the journey. I am a product of the great migration. Family came from South Carolina, migrated to the North. That's a journey, right? Shout out to Dr. Gina Lathan, who also has an episode on the show because on Route 66, she opened up the Root History Life, the, the Root History Museum that tells that story about Black folks who took that journey. Why reading the Green Book and what places could they go to that was safe or not? That's who we've always been in this country in particular. We've been about growth. Go back, have a conversation with your grandparents, have a conversation with your auntie, go talk to the eldest person in your family or go around older people who are playing chess in the park. Shout out to my producer, Ghost, who said he never seen it, but go listen to a bunch of older people talk and just hear their perspective. Don't argue with them. Don't tell them what's right or wrong. Just listen. 
black folk hit a conversation hit a dialogue hit an accent don't laugh at it they mispronounce a word you know what they mean let them go let it fly let that candor go and see what kind of wisdom you pick up from that because i promise you listening to that and hearing the stories from every guest who showed up this past season your blackness will continue to be elevated and you'll understand about the importance of that i'm living proof of that i don't even think i'm the same person on this episode right here that i was on my very first episode when i started off telling you about the story of my big homie rich rest in peace and if life does me right i have an opportunity to continue to grow some more and i hope you will as well that's my desire for you that is why i do the work that's why i want to become a voice that's what i like to say with my writings that's what i say when i'm on these podcasts that's what I say in my everyday walk in life, provide growth and understanding and space. And my wish is for you to have that too. I'd like to thank the producer, Ken Johnson, once again, for bringing me on as a host. My good guy, Ghost, who's also a producer who produces all these episodes. Everybody as a staff of Me and Old Lion Entertainment. Thank you for providing this opportunity. All the past guests that's ever been on this show. And thank you in ahead of time for future guests who will come on the show. Because that's what we've been about here. That's what we've been about here. And I'd like to thank you for your time and your listening. As usual, you can hit me up on all social media platforms at Jayhaw Society. Make sure you check out the latest episode of History Being Black everywhere where you listen to podcasts. Make sure you go to Mino Lion Media on IG. Make sure you go to History of Being Black on Instagram. We'll return. In July, we just going to take a little break because I've been talking for a very long time. <laughs> so until elsewhere, be blessed, be successful, and I'll talk to you soon. We ghosts. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.